welcome back to Podiatry Today Podcasts. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the Managing Editor of Podiatry Today, and we are so happy to have you with us for more conversations from individuals leading the charge in foot and ankle medicine and surgery. Today's guest is Haywan Chu, DPM, a podiatric foot and ankle surgeon in private practice at Albuquerque Associated Podiatrists in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He specializes in diabetic limb salvage and has some interesting thoughts to share with us today that he has encountered in practice regarding source control, diabetic foot infection, and the definition of limb salvage. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chu. So Dr. Chu, source control is a term that we're hearing more and more about these days regarding diabetic foot infections, yet there also seems to be some confusion on this concept. Can you share what source control means to you in your practice? Yeah, I think source control, there's a few ways you can look at it and define it. I think the easiest way to look at it from a diabetic foot infection standpoint would be to say there's a distal tip ulcer with bone exposed and osteomyelitis, and it's contiguous spread infection to the distal phalanx. Complete source control would be amputation past the uh, level of the distal phalanx, maybe including some middle phalanx and primary closure. Most of the time, that's kind of how we look at it. And the other example would be, say, you have a second head ulcer with infection spreading proximally, and it probes the bone. You do a second-rate amputation or TMA. You send bone margins, and the bone margins are negative. And then that will feel, I think for most people, is um, complete source control. I think that's Looking at it from that kind of standpoint, we're missing the mark in a lot of cases because bone infection is a 99.9% of the time in the foot and ankle, it's contiguous spread, meaning it comes from the ulcer, the ulcer gets infected. It's a soft tissue infection that spreads into bone, just so happens to involve bone is how I look at it. I, I think we should pay more attention to the soft tissue and a lot less emphasis on the bone. And a kind of a funny thing that, well, not funny, but this sadly I, I find more often than not is say ER doc sees diabetic foot infection, gets x-rays, there's some gas, but there's no bony lysis. They get MRI, the MRI shows no osteomyelitis per the radiology read. And then the doc consults me and says, doctors, there's this diabetic foot infection. Uh, there's some gas, but, but thankfully there's no osteo. For me, like that, that's scarier than, than to have osteomyelitis. Sure, we, we look at chronic osteomyelitis in the tibia with the you know, chronic history of wounds and drainages. That's a whole different story. But when, when we're talking about the acute infection where there's a you know, severe soft tissue infection, such that you have no soft tissue coverage of the bone, that to me is a whole different animal than diabetic foot osteomyelitis. Um, and I think we need to have more conversations about the soft tissue and its quality, use all the different adjectives that we have in our medical vocabulary to describe it, document it more, talk about it more. Because it's way easier to get MRI or X-ray and document the foot infection based on the advanced imaging. But clinically, you can't tell if it's necrotic based on a MRI or CT scan. You know, talk about necrotizing fasciitis all the time. And the only things we really know about neck fascia is, okay, dishwater drainage, their neck score, they're probably in the ICU. 
Um, but there's actually a difference in type one versus type two necrotizing fasciitis. And type one is much, much more common in the diabetic foot and is you know, oftentimes un under-recognized. A lot of people don't even know that there's a difference in type one and type two. And I think that's where, to me, why I bring up this topic of um, source control is that just want to educate the masses um, on looking more at the soft tissue, reading the soft tissue. There's so much we can gain from just say, uh, even a photo or just looking at, uh, you know, examining the foot. And these are all details that you, you can't find in an MRI or, you know, the CT scan won't be able to tell you. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Are there any particular areas that you think doctors should be more aware of? Should we be raising our index of suspicion for some of these serious soft tissue infections like necrotizing fasciitis and gas gangrene? Or is it just a matter of going back to the basics of good comprehensive physical exam? Uh, yeah, I think combination of uh, what you just said. Yeah, that's exactly right. Whenever a resident scrubs with me and they're asking like, how much tissue am I taking? What am I doing? I, I always tell them I consent for the worst and prepare for the best. Um, and I, I usually point out what I'm looking for in my first exam with the patient to know what to consent for. Wherever I see, wherever I see erythema, there's a concern that underneath that erythema is actually necrotizing soft tissue infection. And you look at the primary infectious source, wherever the ulcer is or wherever it looks the nastiest, and determine if there's necrosis there. If there is necrosis there, then you'd have to assume that underlying erythema has some level of necrosis and you can't tell how bad it is until you open it up. So whenever I see a necrotic ulcer and erythema from say first three rays, then I consent for amputation of the first three rays and educate the patient on why I'm concerned. Um, I usually use the word flesh-eating component of bacterial infection. Whenever they see a flesh-eating, they definitely understand, so I don't have trouble consenting that. And I would say maybe 10% of the time I actually do have to amputate to that level, but 90% of the time I'll tell them, you know, it's not as bad as I thought. We were able to save the other toes, and I think, you know, uh, and usually they're, they're very much more happier with that. Because you, you don't want to be stuck in a situation where, where you're, your initial read was, uh, you know, you don't think it was as bad as you thought. You didn't read the erythema. You go in there, it's a lot worse than you think. You have to tell the patient, you know, look, it's, it's a lot worse than I think it was. And I think we're going to have to go back in tomorrow and do some more source control, you know, removing some more infected tissue. Because that, that whole surgery and that whole day was a waste. You know, the anesthesia was a waste. All that blood loss was a waste. And, you know, patients don't have a lot of times they come in already anemic with, you know, all these comorbidities. So we don't have too much luxuries to keep taking in for repeat washout. So I try and do everything, you know, kind of be as thorough as I can with the debridement the first time around. So we don't need to go in the second time. Do you feel like there are conversations that podiatrists could be having with our colleagues in radiology, emergency medicine, primary care about the ramifications of these soft tissue infections and where it really isn't skin deep? It isn't just a simple cellulitis. Is this something that may help in the long run making sure that there's no delay in referral and treatment? I think the whole world needs to be educated on it. I, I mean, it's, it's just, it's really hard. Like within our profession, sure, I think more of us needs to be aware of it. And it's not an easy thing to do when it's not taught in school throughout the masses. 
And I think a lot of it comes from that we're still understanding these things, but it's just that the nature of, I think, uh, the evolution of medicine is that we can study what we document. And right now we're not taking clinical photos. We're not looking at histology slides of gangrenous tissues and truly understanding what's going on underneath all that. Um, like, you know, like for me, when I look at a diabetic foot ulcer and there's some uh, necrotic drainage, you can call it liquefactive necrosis. You can call it maybe some pus or it just look, it doesn't look quite right. And then you look at the erythema, there's a few kinds of erythema you can look at. It could be blanching or non-blanching. There could be petechiae, and those things tell you, you know, those tell you different things. Um, there could be blistering, and that tells you something else too. Um, and this is all, you know, the, all those things just meant, just, just mean that there's some, you know, endothelial leakage from platelet aggregation from the exotoxins that the bacteria is forming. And it's causing subcutaneous damage to the subdermal plexus or the, you know, subdermal vasculature such that you're having all this leakage. And when you do debridements, the first thing you'll see would be liquefactive necrosis or some kind of like just liquefied tissue and, or even myonecrosis, like muscle just completely dead. You bove it, it doesn't twitch. Um, it's dead muscle. And dead muscle on MRI looks just like inflamed muscle. So you can't, you know, you, you see a MRI, there's gonna, they, they may say there's myositis. Maybe it could be from DNA intervention and atrophy. But you never know until you're in there. Most likely, I mean, if you look at the pattern of it, there's an infection, you gotta assume that that's some kind of necrotizing of soft tissue infection. Um, and I think these are all things that we could do a lot better job at trying to truly understand it. And it's just so difficult because we don't we don't take intraop photos to look at necrosis. I mean, but I think that may be something that's needed to be done to fully understand the the complex nature of diabetic foot infections. Oftentimes, I'll I'll have you know I'll I'll explain all these clinical findings to my residents and and I'll actually refer them to a paper that I often quote is a uh, the New England Journal of Medicine article on soft tissue uh, necrotizing soft tissue infections by Dr. Stevens. It's a great article, lots of detail. Uh, but even there, sadly, the the piece of information that I needed to un truly understand or to to get a really good understanding of how bacteria causes necrosis is in like supplementary appendix a or something you gotta really dig through the article in order to find that small bit of information but it goes through all the detail of how bacteria sends exo exotoxins and creates this necrosis and they looked at like rat animal studies where they occluded a, a like ephemeral artery and then they injected like streptolysin exotoxin uh, o or something like that and it caused the, the same amount of necrosis at the same rate. So it, it's, it's really fascinating stuff if we really dig deep into this. You were mentioning about intraoperative photos that sounds so intuitive and so logical as something that would really be a crucial part of the entire documentation process. Yet you're right, it doesn't routinely happen. It could have benefits in many areas towards patient education, Infectious disease might benefit from seeing firsthand what it looked like in there. Also, if there's any colleagues going in for assistance with closure, like plastics, really getting that interoperative vision that only your eyes thus far have seen is extremely helpful. Why do you think it is that maybe we're not doing that on a routine basis? I think the technology, like camera technology is evolving. Um, uh, that's part of the reason, like, you know, it's, it's, 
it's not super portable uh, 10 years ago. And nowadays, you know, we have smartphones with really high definition and excellent quality photos. Um, but I think a barrier is also uh, patient consent or hospital regulations or policies. And like after you take the photo, like, you know, having worked at the VA, anytime you take a photo, it has to be with like a HIPAA compliant camera and like a, it's a whole process. And it's just like hell ordering an MRI is so much easier than getting a uh, clinical intraop photo documented in the most HIPAA compliant way possible. Uh, I, I, you know, those are all barriers we have, but I, you know, I hope in the future that I think, you know, intraoperative documentation is, uh, you know, done more at least for research purposes or self-study, things like that, um, I think will be really helpful to advancing our field. Those are some really great points. Um, one thing you brought up or that we've spoken about in the past is the definition of limb salvage. What do you think is important, switching gears slightly to this topic, is what's important for our audience to know about this? Yeah, for me, um, limb salvage is, um, it's more about preservation of the limb, where um, just because you saved the tope this time doesn't mean next year they're going to be perfect you know it's a continual salvage so i think maybe a limb preservation is a better term but but for me if you if we look at limb salvage from a podiatrist from a foot ankle or podiatrist standpoint uh we we should look more at um, getting good source control it really comes down to that again because that's when you first meet the patient if you have good source control the first time around your second surgery is 100 percent focused on wound closure or function. That's where we can get into like fillet flaps or TMAs and uh, different things like that, rotational flaps, random flaps to try and get a wound covered. But you can't do that unless you get good source control the first time around. So that's kind of why I think like, you know, I, I define limb salvage for myself. Every time I go to the, you know, I can I meet a patient is uh, aggressive, thorough source control first time around. So that we don't need to go in for a second surgery. Uh, obviously, that's inevitable sometimes, and sometimes it's a really tough call to to make whether you need to be as aggressive as you think we need to be. Um, but yeah, to me, to me, that's that's really a definition of themselves first time around is excellent source control. Do it right the first time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if if we talk more about it, I think that you know. Well, we'll start to understand it more like to me. So, so the other example of an infection would be an abscess An abscess you poke it drain it, you know, maybe irrigate it. The surgical work is so much minimal compared to a necrotizing infection. And when you're looking at necrosis, there's usually no pus necrosis. And I think, you know, well, well, why is that? Well, it's because you're, when there's pus, it means your, your body is fighting off the bacteria creating this slurry of leukocyte, you know, dead neutrophils and bacterial debris. That's what, that's what pus is. And when I see pus, that's a good sign. That means your, your patient's host is good. It's fighting it off and, and you know, your, your body's able to wall it off. I think we have so much to learn from our patients. I find this kind of stuff very fascinating is that I've seen totally healthy hosts. Uh, typically these are drug abusers with abscesses that go untreated and they self-medicate with more medical drugs. And the abscess eventually forms necrosis of the skin because of so much pressure 
eventually the bacteria will win in a, in a, in a certain area causing the same thing we see in you know type 1 neck fash you know that subdermal uh, vascular thrombosis some epidermal necrosis just from the pressure and the sheer concentration of bacteria despite a healthy host whereas in a immunocompromised host uh, a simple abscess in a normal host or a a strain of bacteria that's not normally uh, infectious or uh, pathogenic um, could become slowly necrotizing type, you know, it could, could contribute to um, necrosis of uh, immunocompromised host. These are slow growing type one infections. Um, they're not in the ICU, they're sometimes no pain, sometimes no white care. The only thing you can rely on is your clinical acumen in that, in that situation, and those are the hardest calls to make. No, absolutely. Uh, these patients can be very complex regardless of who the host is. Are there any final thoughts that you would like to share with the listeners today? In the operating room, when I do a debridement, you, you remove the necrotic area, Next, I tell the patient, okay, or I tell the resident, okay, after we remove all the necrotic tissue, what next are you going to watch out for? What ne what's your next thing to look for to debride? And it's vascular thrombosis. You know, that's where we know there's the bacteria causing exotoxin formation, leading to you know, all this other stuff that we just talked about. Uh, but you don't think about that <laughs> in surgery sometimes, and that has to be taught um, or learned and uh, to teach them to go the extra mile to thoroughly debride that vascular thrombotic tissue. Sometimes you just remove two millimeters of tissue and you get bleeding beautiful normal tissue. And, and that's where the extra, you know, going the extra mile for sports control, in my opinion, that, that's really where it's at. I think patients certainly appreciate their doctors going the extra mile for them and it will most definitely show in the resultant outcomes. Thank you so much, Dr. Chu, for sharing your expertise and thoughts with us today. To the listeners, we also appreciate you joining us. Don't forget that you can find Podiatry Today podcasts on many of your preferred podcast platforms, as well as at podiatrytoday.com.